You know, today we're going to continue in our series through the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 4. I need you to know this is not a good time for the nation of Israel. I mean, they needed to know some things about serving God and about pleasing God. I mean, Israel was in trouble because God was not with them. And so they went about trying to get God's presence back, but they went about it all wrong. You see, in the process of trying to get God back on their side, they discovered some things that I believe will help us if we will discover the same things that the nation of Israel did. And when we left uh, last week, God had just spoken to Samuel through a vision. And the vision was about Eli and his sons and, and how their sin would never be atoned for by sacrifice. I mean, God had moved his blessing from Eli and his sinful sons to Samuel. And what was to unfold was that Samuel's words as he grew and his influence would reach the entire nation of Israel. Samuel would be seen as a prophet and a spiritual leader. He would usher in the age of the kings. Now we might expect, you know, to see what is next for Samuel as we approach chapter four, but we don't. In fact, we don't see Samuel at all in chapter four. The focus though shifts to the Ark of the Covenant. Now we're gonna see Samuel again when we get to chapter seven, but today it's all about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you've ever seen the first Indiana Jones movie, then you know something about the ark. The ark was this wooden rectangular box, little less than four feet, covered with gold. On the top were two winged creatures, they called them cherubim, and they were facing each other with their outstretched wings touching at the tip across the top of the box. At this time, you know, the ark contained the stone tablets of uh, the covenant that God made with Israel, most commonly known as the Ten Commandments. I mean, these tablets spoke of the promise that Israel was committed to and, and the holy way that, of life that God had set down for them to be his people. Now, the ark usually rested in the inner chamber of the tabernacle. It was called the Holy of Holies. And once a year, only the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and offer a blood sacrifice that made atonement for all of the sins of Israel for that year. So the ark, you see, spoke of the absolute holiness of God and the need to hold God in awe and approach him with humility. It was a visible symbol of God's presence with the Israelites. Now, I would like to take the next couple of minutes just to read the entire passage. It's 11 verses out of 1 Samuel chapter four. I want us to kind of get the whole story in one, in one time. And so if you have a Bible, you can follow along or you can follow along as I read. 1 Samuel chapter four, verse one. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Well, when the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. 
So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought the Ark of the Covenant back, Ark of the Lord God Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So that's the story we're gonna dig in today in the next few minutes. And we're gonna learn a couple of lessons that Israel learned that I believe we can apply to our lives today. So let's dig into this. The Israelites and the Philistines had quite a history of battle with each other. I mean, today we read about two battles that didn't go well for Israel. We learn right from the beginning of the chapter that the Philistines had just won a victory over Israel and in the process, Israel lost 4,000 men. But it's clear, it's really clear that Israel thought that they should have won. I could just hear them saying, I mean, God, he's on our side, right guys? I mean, what happened? Why did we lose? And before we get to verse three, I want to have you think about a question because this question that I want you to think about is at the root of why Israel lost both battles and it reveals their problem and it's at the root of our problem in life today. Here's the question I want you to think about and I will remind us of as we go through the next few minutes together. Who is really running the show of your life? You? Or God, who is really running the show of your life? (laughs) I don't know, maybe you like me, you've noticed sometimes I see that when people get into really difficult and, and tight spots, tight situations, they can begin to try and use God to get them out of those situations. They can even go so far as to put God in a corner, so to speak, you know, and when everything's not nailed down and things are coming loose, as was the case in Israel's defeat, they hope that they can at least nail God down. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever read this book. It's a cute little book by J.B. Phillips. It's a small book. He wrote, it's called, Your God is Too Small. Listen to what he says, because in the book he says that in crunch times of life, we try to define God. We try to limit God. And the bottom line is we try and make a God who serves us. So let me ask again, who's really running the show of your life? 
So let's get to verse three and continue with our story. Well, when the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Well, we know they lost, but isn't it interesting in verse three that they blame their defeat not on their bad fighting, not the fact that they couldn't conquer the Philistines hand to hand, but they blame it on God. If God had been there, he would have, we would have won. <laughs> it's very revealing because I think they probably went into battle remembering the other times God had allowed them to defeat their enemies. So the Israelite leaders, the elders, it says in scripture, come up with what they think is the solution. Look at what's next. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. You see, in the history of Israel, the ark was a symbol of God's presence. And at times, the ark came to have this significant military function, and they knew all about this. They knew, for example, that when Moses led the Israelite nation away from Mount Sinai for the first time, that the ark led them through the desert as a means of protection. And another time, God instructed Joshua to give the ark a prominent role in the capture of Jericho. You remember Jericho when they marched around the walls of Jericho and all the walls came tumbling down? Well, the ark had a prominent role in that defeat. Well, in their debrief of this loss, they thought, well, when we go fight these guys again, we just need the ark of the Lord to be with us. They thought if we could just get the presence of the ark on the battlefield, hey, I think we'll win. They wanted to use God, though, for their own purposes. (laughs) Verse four, so the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. So let me just pause here a minute. What were they about to do? What is it they exactly were trying to do? They were about to confuse, you understand, the symbol of God's presence with the reality of God's presence. Let me say that again. They were about, by putting their their faith in the ark, to confuse the symbol of God's presence with the reality of God's presence. (laughs) They were about to say that it was the ark that won the battles. They were about to bring in the ark, thinking that this box would fight for them. They thought they could define God in a box, you see. It's like taking a piece of fruit and peeling it and then eating the peeling and throwing the fruit away. I mean, we miss the reality because we are captivated with the package. And that's what they were. They were captivated with the ark. We see people today try and do the same thing. I mean, we see some people who may be having family problems, you know, and and so they say, well, if we can just go to church and then everything will work itself out. (laughs) Or they may have some money problems and they say, we got to get to church. Or there's a sickness in the family and they come and say, well, we've got to get into church, thinking that will solve their problems. (laughs) Maybe they think, well, God has to be nice to me because I've been nice to him by going to church. See, that's using the ark to box God up and make him do what we want him to do. (laughs) Now, if you're coming to church for the right reasons, if you're coming to church because you need to know who God is and you want an authentic, real experience with him, then this is not you. I mean, that's a good reason to come to church. But we've got to understand is that God is not gonna be used though like a good luck charm. 
I assure you, he's greater than our imagining. God is freer than we think, and God is not going to be used for our agenda. You see, the mistake that Israel made was to define God as a religious practice. The mistake that Israel made was to define God as a religious practice. They focused on the box, not the presence of God, not the reality of God as a box. That's what they looked at. You know, it's a mistake we could make as well. I mean, we cannot define God that way any more than we can contain the ocean in a five-gallon bucket. I mean, it's just not possible (laughs) because God will do what God will do, (laughs) not not what we try and make him do. Uh, See, he is unwilling to be anybody's good luck charm. Have you ever heard about people (laughs) who try and manipulate God? I mean, I I chuckle because some of this bears on just kind of humorous and a little bit funny, but it's really very serious. Most people do it this way. God, if you will do such and such this for me, then I will do this for you. It's like they're bargaining with God or... God, if you let my plane land safely at my destination, then I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. You know, have you ever heard somebody say that? Or God, if you let me win the lottery, I'll give half of the money to the church. I mean, it is a little bit humorous, but it's a way we try and manipulate God. God, if you help me pass this test, I'll actually serve in VBS this summer. Listen, folks, that's not relationship. That's manipulation. And when we try to manipulate God, we lose him in the process. See, we make a mistake when we try to define God by a religious practice. We make a mistake when we try and define God by a religious practice. But there's another thing that went down here. I mean, Israel expected God's blessings without even consulting him and without repentance. Look at what we learn in verse four. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. I mean, these two guys are very intriguing characters. I mean, the sons of Eli, the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas, were tending the Ark while it was in the tabernacle at Shiloh. But we know more about these two guys than just what we've read here. I mean, you go back two chapters and you find out that these two, according to scripture, were first class scoundrels. I mean, it's not a word we use every day. Scripture calls them scoundrels. They weren't suited for being priests. I mean, they would steal the sacrificial offerings. They would extort larger gifts from the people. They would seduce the women. They were thoroughly disgraceful, sinful men. So when we read in verse four that that the two sons of Eli were there with the ark, well, the plot thickens. The plot thickens because not only do you have the leaders of Israel, the elders, defining God, hoping to control him for their own cause by focusing on the box, but you also have two men posing as the priests of God who are really hypocrites, liars, cheats. Here are two individuals attending the ark, which is the visible symbol of God's presence among the Israelites who are in complete sinful rebellion to God. And what was Israel's reaction when these two guys show up with the ark? (laughs) 
Well, I can tell you what they should have done. (laughs) They should have torn their clothes and poured dust on their heads in repentance like they did in the Old Testament. They should have prayed and asked for God's help. And then they should have obeyed what God said about how to go about this battle with the Philistines. Instead, they didn't even think of consulting God. And they didn't, instead they raised up this giant shout of celebration. Listen, as long as the brothers, these two priests, remain unrepentant, God was not going to bless Israel's wars. And the ark was not going to serve a military role like it had in the past. Israel expected God's blessings without even approaching him in prayer, asking him for direction, and more importantly, without repentance for the sin that they had been involved with. You see, repentance of sin is a... uh, is, a, is critical to maintaining fellowship with God. I mean, Israel cannot hold on to their sin and expect God to have the same type of relationship with him. They needed to confess their sin. And you know what? That's for us today. We need to confess our sin and receive God's forgiveness. Anytime we hold on to forms of religion without true repentance, we are substituting, listen to this, we are substituting ritual for relationship. And that's a big deal. See, we make a mistake when we expect God's blessings without repentance. Now, as I talk about this, I want to make it clear. This is not about losing your salvation. It's about the status of our relationship with God. And let me just share an illustration, a personal illustration. I'm not saying this happened, but let me just share this. (laughs) Let's say, just for the sake of example, all right, that I sin against Miriam, my wife. Now, that sin is going to change the nature of our relationship. She is not going to relate to me the same way as she did before the sin. Why? Because sin changes the relationship. What I need to do is to come to grips with my sin that I've committed against her and then come to her in humility and ask her for forgiveness in a way that she knows I get it, that I understand that the nature of my sin, what it was, and how it affected her life. That's genuine repentance. Only then can our relationship be restored. Now let me say this. Was she still my wife during this time? (laughs) Of course, yes, but I cannot expect the relationship to be blessed when I have unconfessed sin. (laughs) And that's the way it is with our relationship with God. I think that's why I love 1 John 1, verse 9, because there's a promise, because as we have the power over sin, we still sin at times, and we need to come to God and restore that relationship. Here's what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins... He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And you know what? Once that takes place, our relationship with God is back to the way it should be. It's not about losing your salvation. It's about how unconfessed sin changes the nature of the relationship we have with God. We make a mistake when we expect God's blessings without repentance. So what happens next is the ark arrives 
And all of Israel is filled with hope, happiness. They celebrate at the arrival of the ark. Look at verse five. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. That must have been some celebration. That must have been some shout for the ground to shake. Now, I don't know how many miles away the Philistine camp was from the Israel camp, but they heard all about the shouting. They heard the shouting unfold and they asked each other, hey, what's going on here? I mean, listen to verse six. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines ask, what's all this shouting about in the Hebrew camp? Well, when they realized that the ark of God had arrived, they figured they were in trouble. <laughs> Look at next. When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. They said, a God has come into the camp. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. They thought this was going to be a hopeless situation for them. They believed that they were now in big trouble the next time they fight these guys. They knew about how God had saved Israel while, while they were slaves in Egypt. Look at verse 8. We're doomed. I mean, there's no hope. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Wow. You know, these Philistine guys, they really know their history. <laughs> I mean, they don't have a Bible to read, but they knew what has happened in the past. They know how God set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt, and they almost got it right. I mean, oh, they speak of gods with a little g instead of God with a capital G, the one true living God. But do you get the flavor of this? Take just a moment. They think that the divine is really there, and they're afraid. They believe that power, that divine power has entered the fight. They haven't defined God but know that God is unleashed and they believe he is powerful. <laughs> did God make, did that make God enemies? Of, but did that make the enemies of God people weaken and run away? No, it didn't. Look at verse nine. Be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been subject to you. Be men and fight. You know, what's interesting to me is that once they had that dose of reality, they didn't turn and run. Instead, they challenged each other. Be men, fight. They're going to give it their all. The Philistines thought that they just fought hard enough and long enough they could beat the God of the universe. Ironically, they did. They defeated the Israelites. And even though Israel had the ark with them, they lost once again to the Philistines. And what's worse, not only did they lose the battle, they lost the ark. But trust me, they did not defeat God. God let them win. It was no contest. The first battle had been lost, so the people of Israel bring in the ark. They take the ark of the covenant with them, thinking that it's going to automatically win the battle for them. They were attempting to use God for their own purposes, to use God as their good luck charm. Israel thought they could get this God in a box to fight for them. But the enemies of God's people just intensified their efforts. And you know what? We already read this. The second battle was lost too. The hot losses were huge. Among them was Hophni and Phinehas, the corrupt sons of Eli. They died. The ark of the Lord, well, it was now in the hands of the enemy for the very first time. The box that they thought contained God had been captured by their enemy. And maybe you're thinking like me that things can't get any worse than this, having the box that contained God's presence in, in enemy hands. Well, things can't get worse. Can they? Yeah, they can. 
Let me tell you a bit about what happened in the next few chapters. Because the news began to spread through the towns and the villages of Israel, a messenger eventually made his way back to Shiloh where Eli was waiting. 98 years old, Eli is, sick and blind and overweight. And Eli heard the terrible news. The guy comes, he says, 30,000 soldiers are dead, Eli. That's bad. Your two sons are dead, Eli. That's really bad. The ark of the Lord has been captured. Well, at that point, it says, scripture says, Eli fell backward off of the chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for he was what? An old man and he was very heavy. Not only did 30,000 fall, not only did the two sons of the high priest die, not only did the God box get taken away, and not only did the high priest break his neck, but also a young woman, actually Eli's daughter-in-law, gave birth to his son, and then she died. But before she died, she named her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. It's all over, it's done. My family is ruined, life is over. Israel is finished. Ichabod, the glory has departed. The beauty, the wonder, the grandeur of God is gone. His protection is gone. The magnificence of God's presence with us is also gone. And we pick up the story in chapter five where the Philistine camp, and we see this. We're in the Philistine camp in chapter five, and this is what we see. God, who cannot be manipulated, will be honored as holy. How do we see that? Well, the ark was placed as a trophy in the house of the Philistine deity, an idol called Dagon. They woke up one morning to find something very strange and scary had happened. That idol, Dagon, had fallen over with its face to the ground and its heads and hands were broken off, only its torso remained. Now, if that's your deity and you walk up and you see that, you get a little scared. You go, what's going on here? What's going on here is God is showing his power and he will be honored as holy. And if that wasn't enough, the people of the Philistine city, Ashdod, well, they were stricken with this painful disease. And so the ark had been moved to another city. But again, that same disease became an outbreak with them. And finally, the Philistines says, we got to get rid of this ark. So you know what they did? They hitched the ark. Well, they, they, they hitched two cows that had recently given birth to calves to a brand new cart. They put the ark on the cart and turned the animals loose. Now, here's the interesting thing. Rather than these two cows that had just given birth, rather than them head over to their calves to attend to their needs, the cows went straight to the Israelite camp. God is showing his power and he will be honored as holy. And the result, the people of Israel rejoiced. They had the Ark of the Covenant back in their possession. But some of the Israelite men, out of curiosity, peeked into the Ark. And let me tell you, that's a big no-no. God struck them down, killing them. You see, they were forbidden to open the lid of the Ark. It just points out that the people at that time still were not recognized the power and the holiness of God. See, in this story, we, we see Israel learning a very painful and costly lesson. Israel failed to treat God with honor, realizing that he is holy, that he is a holy God. God had clearly told them how to, how to fight their wars, but instead of searching their hearts and confessing their sins, the people decided to imitate Moses and Joshua and take the ark into battle with them. But this approach was merely using God to accomplish their own purposes. 
Unlike Moses and Joshua, they did not seek the will of the Lord. They certainly were not seeking to honor God. But what Israel desperately needed to do was to recover a sense of holiness and the power of God and repent from the sin that had invaded the people of Israel. Because only when the people of God honored him again could he bring their, his people blessing. They made a mistake, you see, by trying to define God as a religious practice and use him for their own purposes. And they also made a mistake by expecting God's blessings without repenting of their sin and then asking for his direction. So I got to ask you a question. What does this mean to us today? One thing is that we need to embrace the reality that God will not be used like a good luck charm. You see, when people get into trouble, they want to go get him and they want to use him. But let me remind us that God exalts the humble, as we learned last week, and brings down the proud. (laughs) No, what we need to see is just like he wouldn't let Israel use him, especially with unconfessed sin, God won't let us use him either. Israel found out the hard way. They thought as soon as their good luck charm got there, then that was all it was going to take. But God showed them that he's not the kind of God that's going to be used. We need to realize that there is more to it than just showing up at church or wearing a cross around our neck or carrying a Bible around. Not that those things are bad, but there's also the need to acknowledge God, that God is holy and that our job is to allow him to be the in control Lord of our life, a life of trust as we surrender to him. You see, there are people who say they are Christians, but all they end up doing is just adding him to all the other gods of this world, the things that are important to them that they have in their life. And you know what? I just got to tell you, all that's going to do is make life 10 times more miserable for us. I mean, if we're going to have an authentic relationship with Jesus, then he has got to come first. For the past eight years, LBF Church has lived with this mission statement. I'm sure many of you who are watching this morning, you really know this mission statement because we've said it so much. But we are here to help people passionately pursue life in Jesus. And this passionate pursuit, that passionate pursuit is is, is used purposely. It's not a half-hearted journey. We are passionately pursuing life in Jesus when we give our full commitment, our entire energy to our relationship with Jesus. Jesus has to be the guiding force of everything we believe and everything we do. It's a relationship that is about surrendering our will to his will, to his words of life and his words of truth. You know, when we surrender, we yield, we submit, we relinquish control over what we consider to be ours. We surrender it to God through Jesus. In order to surrender our heart, body, and soul to God, we must be willing to yield to the sovereign will of a holy God. So let me ask you the same question I started back when we started this message today. Who is running the show of your life? You or God. We've seen what can happen when we try and run the show, when we try to get God to do things for us without acknowledging that he is the God of the universe. That when we come to him, we don't come expecting him to do everything. We ask as if he's in some kind of submission to us and our agenda. But we come to him in repentance for our sins so that we can experience true, authentic relationship with him because of unhindered relationship through confession of sin. When we let God run the show, it's also going to require something of us. 
Actually, it's going to require all of us. For believers, it, you know, it's not about trying to define God or manipulating God into our desires. It's about surrendering to God. Getting in sync with God, building a relationship with God through obedience and confession of sin and repentance, and then purposely and intentionally drawing close to God by, by growing in our knowledge of who he is and, and then moving through life, yielding to him in trust relationships. Who's going to run the show of your life? You or God? Let me pray for us. Father, we've been challenged today in some very uh, hard ways, maybe for some of us. We've been challenged as we look at the nation of Israel and, and what they had to learn and the loss that they had to experience. And I would just pray that you would use the passage of Scripture today and all that's been said to challenge us to move into a new area of life transformation where we yield to you in the, even in the most difficult things that are part of our life, that we walk in surrendering our, our will to your will and in a growing trust relationship with you, God. We just ask you to do this because we want to grow in what it means to passionately pursue the life that Jesus gives us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we're gonna to continue to worship through music. We're gonna move from the scriptures of worship to the music worship. God bless you as we continue to worship him today.